You're listening to TIP. Yeah, it's funny. I think a lot of times people get the idea that value investors are stuck investing in below average businesses, what Warren Buffett or Benjamin Graham called the cigar butt companies. But to us, value just means that you're getting a lot more than you're paying for. On today's episode, I'm joined by Bill Nigren and Mike Nicholas. Bill and Mike are portfolio managers at Oakmark Funds, which has over $120 billion in assets under management. During the episode, I chat with Bill and Mike about the three things they look for in companies they invest in, why Pfizer is a great value play in today's market, how Pfizer's growth compares to that of the S&P 500, why their P.E. ratio shouldn't be taken at face value, how Bill and Mike view the valuation of Pfizer and why the stock is currently trading at a much lower valuation than their competitors, PayPal and Square, why they view Facebook and Alphabet as value plays, and much, much more. Bill and Mike's approach to discovering investment opportunities is very insightful, and I personally find a ton of value learning from them. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did with Bill Nigren and Mike Nicholas. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's show, I'm joined by Bill Nigren and Mike Nicholas. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Clay. Great to be here. I've been a huge fan of you guys for a while now, and I really think the listeners are going to really like this episode as we're going to talk a bit about your investment processes and Pfizer. To get us kicked off, Bill, I listened to your interview with Preston Pish and Stig Broderson on We Study Billionaires that was recorded back in 2019. And you walked through your investment process at Oakmark, and I really found it quite fascinating. Could you and Mike talk about your process for our millennial investing listeners? Sure. Happy to start out that way. Anything that we look to buy in any of our Oakmark funds has to meet three criteria. First, it has to be cheap. We want it to sell at a significant discount to our estimate of long-term business value. Second, we want to make sure that value is growing. One of the traps that long-term investors often fall into is they end up owning businesses that are structurally disadvantaged, maybe losing market share. And to avoid those traps, we look for companies where we expect the combination of dividend growth and per share value growth to at least match what we expect for the S&P 500. So say we expect earnings growth of about 5% at the S&P with a 2% dividend yield, we want ours to have a combination of at least 7%. And we're agnostic as to whether it's a 7% dividend yield with no growth or 7% growth with no dividend yield or anywhere in between. And then the third thing that we want is we want a management team that's aligned with the outside shareholders who's intent on maximizing long-term per share business value. And all those terms are important. We want long-term value maximization, not next quarter. And we want them to think on a per share value basis. We don't want management teams that are just trying to grow the value of the enterprise, maybe by making overpriced acquisitions and issuing lots of stock. 
on a per share basis, we want them taking actions that maximize value for the long term. And when we get all three of those, it gives us the luxury of a time frame that's longer than almost any of the other investors in public markets are using. Our analysts look out seven years and we're very comfortable maintaining our positions over that length of time. Uh, we like to say that gives us almost a private equity perspective to public equity investing. We're going to talk a little bit more about your process later in the episode, but let's talk about Pfizer first. Before we dive into the specifics of the company, could you please briefly walk us through the lines of business that Pfizer has for those in the audience that might not be familiar? Yeah, Pfizer is one of the world's largest financial technology companies. Its business is really organized around three core divisions. You know, the first segment is their what they call their bank software segment, or it's typically referred to as core account processing software. And this software kind of acts as the central nervous system of a bank. It's it's basically the back office operating system that allows a bank to process loan and deposit accounts and run the general ledger and manage regulatory and compliance requirements. About 40% of US banks today use Pfizer software to run their business, but it's primarily small and medium-sized banks since many of them kind of lack the resources to develop these types of software solutions internally. So this division makes up about 20% of Pfizer's revenue. It's very sticky, but the market's mature. You know, we expect Pfizer's bank software division to grow around mid-single digits organically moving forward. You know, the second main division is their, their payments and networks division. And this division, it's about 40% of the company's sales. And it's really just a broad collection of digital banking solutions for small and medium-sized banks like bill pay capabilities and mobile digital banking, P2P transfer uh, with Zell and even card issuer processing. And in addition to that, Fleischer actually owns the, the third largest debit network in the US behind MasterCard and Visa called the Star Network. The average Pfizer customer probably has you know, 15 plus of these products. And the revenues are typically tied to the number of accounts on file or the number of transactions per period. So with this division, we expect it to grow kind of mid-single digit plus over the medium term and largely in line with the company's expectations. That last 40% or so comes from the company's merchant acceptance division. And this is the segment that that represents really the majority of what they bought from first data in 2019. And you know, these technologies enable merchants to, to effectively accept payments in almost any form. The company is the, the number one merchant acquirer and payment processor in the world, and they've got trillions in payment volume and, and millions of merchants using these services. Yeah, I'd say the most exciting asset within this division, probably the company for that matter, is Clover, which is a merchant acquiring platform that's really focused on small and medium-sized businesses. Again, it competes head-to-head with square seller business, as well as vertically focused players like Toast. And you know, this business, it's exciting. It's been growing rapidly. And by some estimates, maybe worth a real considerable amount of, of Fiserv's total enterprise value today. This division is the fastest growing within Fiserv, expected to grow you know, high single to low double digits over the coming year. So just stepping back, you know, Fiserv, it's the number one core account software provider number one merchant acquirer and issuer processor in the country. And you know, we believe it's well positioned to benefit from kind of high level trends like the continued conversion of, of cash to card and really the secular trend toward increased spending in, on technology by financial institutions and banks. Yeah, it definitely seems like they're very well diversified when it comes to all their lines of business. They have those three main branches that you outlined. 
And it seems to me that Pfizer is just one of those companies that's naturally underappreciated because many investors just aren't familiar with what they do or who they are. Pfizer made the massive acquisition of acquiring First Data back in 2019 for $22 billion, which you alluded to, and that was an all-stock transaction. Could you talk about what First Data brings to the table for them and what synergies you expect between them and Pfizer? What was, I would say, historically a rather straightforward investment case for legacy Pfizer became significantly more complicated when they made the offer to acquire First Data in 2019. And as I mentioned, together, they operate the largest card issuance and merchant acquiring platform in an industry that, that really benefits immensely from scale advantages. So increased scale was, was certainly one of the benefits to the deal. Yeah, another real big benefit of that deal was distribution. And if you think about legacy Pfizer, you know, they provided core account processing software for 10,000 plus banks and credit unions around the country. And they obviously rely on this to run their business. But these banks have small business lending arms with an enormous number of merchant relationships sitting underneath them. And Pfizer believed at the time that they could really stimulate First Data's growth by offering its customers, the banks, the opportunity to generate additional fees by becoming really a distributor of their payment solutions like Clover. And these relationships, you know, they benefit the bank, they benefit the merchant, and of course, they benefit Pfizer. And I'd say the success we've seen at Clover over the past few years, which we can get into in more detail later, serves to at least partially validate management's views there. We thought Pfizer paid a, a pretty attractive price for first data. You know, it traded at a significantly lower multiple than peers at the time, despite you know, what the company believed to be vastly improved technology and business mix. And in our view, first data CEO, now Pfizer, Frank Bizignano, did a really good job improving the first data business and accelerating growth after years of just higher merchant churn and poor customer service and capital constraints and just a lot of executive turnover under KKR's ownership. So the logic underpinning the transaction from both a cost and a revenue perspective was quite compelling and I think was almost somewhat validated by the knock-on deals that it sparked. I mean, shortly after the Pfizer first data merger, the company's chief competitors, which are FIS and Global Payments, they each announced 20 billion plus mergers in this space as well. So, you know, post the deal, we expect organic revenue growth to accelerate given the higher base rate of growth and payments as well as the, the 600 million of revenue synergies they've identified. And, you know, operating margins should expand considerably. They're talked about 1.2 billion of cost synergies they expect to realize from the combination. So we think the business will go faster, more profitably than legacy uh, standalone Pfizer did. I'm interested, since it was a $22 billion stock deal and Pfizer's, you know, their market cap today is roughly $70 billion, from a financial perspective, how does the all-stock transaction work? Did they simply buy out all the public shares on the market at a premium and fund the deal with debt? The $22 billion figure you referenced was the, the value they paid for First Data's equity. And that was, if I recall, about a 30% premium to where it was trading at that time. It was an all-stock transaction, and that really resulted in Pfizer issuing new shares to First Data shareholders such that Pfizer shareholders owned, you know, call it roughly 60% of the combined company, and First Data shareholders owned the remaining 40% or so. But they also assumed a significant debt load from First Data in this transaction, such that the total acquisition clause was actually much closer to $39 billion at the time of the announcement. And Clover came to Pfizer through First Data 
with the benefit of hindsight, you know, that one asset, Clover, may prove to justify the entire deal. That's interesting. Did you become really interested in Pfizer once they completed that first data acquisition? You know, you've talked a lot about Clover, or were you interested in Pfizer prior to the acquisition? Uh, it was really following the acquisition that we became more interested. You know, legacy Pfizer, the least, had historically traded at a comfortable premium to the market, a considerable one, and you know, had been a consistent double-digit earnings grower for decades. But once the deal was announced and the stock had sold off, and this was really during COVID when we decided to revisit it, that's when we became more interested. But we typically find that M&A could be, you know, tends to be an interesting space for us to revisit names that we've historically looked at or potentially to find new opportunities if the market may take a different view on that transaction than we do. Mike had mentioned earlier that the story had gotten a little more complicated after the first data acquisition. And... To us, that's a good thing. When, when a story's simple and the company's growing rapidly, it's almost always accompanied by a price that's too high for us. But you do an acquisition like this, and some of the shareholders on one side or the other side of the deal don't really like it, and they sell their stock. You've got management talking about large potential synergies, both in revenue and in cost. And a lot of analysts get sloppy and assume that they'll only achieve part of that and kind of wait and see on the rest of it. Uh, we dig deeper and get comfortable with a specific number of synergies that we think they can meet. And then also a lot of times, especially in the stock deals, you're creating amortization, which depresses reported earnings without depressing cash flow. And we dig into that as well to see if we think those are real economic charges or if it's just kind of an accounting loss. So the amortization charges can kind of camouflage a cheap stock. So we find a lot of times that these company-altering acquisitions provide good hunting ground. Bill, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the three things you look for in the companies that you invest in at Oakmark, and that's companies that are trading at a significant discount. They're growing their dividend and per share value at least as high as the S&P 500, and they have managers that think and act like owners. I'd like to start with that second point of the dividend growth and per share value growth as high as the S&P 500. When I was looking at Pfizer's 2020 annual report in preparation for the meeting, one of the things they show on the annual report towards the top is their EPS adjusted growth has been double digits for the past 35 years, which really is just incredible and also goes back to the management as well. I want to ask, how does Pfizer's dividend growth and per share value growth compare to the S&P 500? Well, on that backward look, the S&P has grown a little more than 5% over the past 20 years, probably closer to a 6 or 7% annualized growth rate in EPS, along with paying out a 2 to 3% dividend. So you get somewhere on a historical basis, something like an 8 or 9% a year compound growth rate. And as you said, Pfizer had been double digit for 35 years, so they've been comfortably exceeding S&P 500 growth. Now, as we think about it and how we the, the basis for our valuation, it's not backwards. It's what we expect going forward. And Mike will get into more of the detail, but we think that the combined Pfizer and First Data ought to continue growing more rapidly than the S&P 500. They generate excess cash flow. You've still got KKR's influence on the board of directors because they were the company that was involved when First Data had been taken private. 
So, you know, we're pretty comfortable with the combination of business growth and reduction in capital base will continue to exceed the S&P 500 going forward. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Moving on to having managers that think and act like owners, what all are you looking for on this item specifically? Well, in general terms, what we want to avoid is the professional manager that gets paid based on how big the business is. And we think that type of compensation structure for management teams has led to a lot of value-destructive acquisitions. It's led to a lot of efforts to grow in unrelated businesses where the company isn't competitively advantaged. What we really want is a management team that thinks like an owner, like as if they own the whole business themselves. What would they do with the capital? Clearly, they would reinvest in the business where they think they're competitively advantaged. And if they don't think they're competitively advantaged, they'd take that capital away from the business and invest in something completely different, maybe another company. The way a public company can do that is by either repurchasing shares or paying the money back to us in dividends. We want that kind of thought process in the management team. We want them to think like a single proprietor would think 
who was building business for the next generation, not just trying to maximize next quarter or next year, but what should they do? How should they invest? Best position the company for five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. You know, we're quite comfortable that the KKR mindset and the mindset of the other directors at Fiserv is that very long-term per share value maximization approach that we like to see in all our businesses at Oakmark. Yeah, so we do focus a lot, Clay, on incentive compensation metrics and you know, making sure in most instances that they have denominators to prevent some of the empire building that Bill was referencing and you know, focus more on, on total shareholder return or, or EPS growth. Of course, we want, we'd love to see the managers own a tremendous amount of stock personally. And I think in Fiserv's case, their CEO, Frank Bizignano, does own hundreds of billions of dollars of stock. And you know, we want to make sure that when they're making any decision, M&A, they're measuring against share repurchase and making sure that that's the benchmark with which they deploy capital. So all very important metrics for long-term owners like ourselves. I really admire your guys' ability to really simplify the valuation process in the companies that you guys own. Could you walk through how you think about the valuation of Pfizer? I guess the simplest way to describe it is that you know we believe Pfizer is an above-average business trading for a well-below-market multiple. And we do expect the company to be a mid-single-digit to high-single-digit organic revenue grower over the medium term. Um, and we would expect that to be a company with, with a good amount of margin expansion per year. You know, today, if you look at the stock, it trades for about 14 times our estimate of next year's after-tax earnings, which, um, which is a considerable discount, 25% or so to the market. Now, as I referenced before, historically, it had traded closer to a 25% premium to the S&P 500. That's legacy Pfizer. You know, we find that dynamic interesting since growth today is above historical averages and expected to be. Margins are higher, and innovation in R&D spend is bigger and accelerating relative to, to legacy Pfizer. So we think there's, there's considerable upside from here without having to rely on overly demanding assumptions or even just putting a market multiple on it. But you know, to get maybe a bit more granular, you, know, you can look at a company like Pfizer through more of like a sum of the parts lens, if you will. And there are some specific assets, briefly touched on Clover, that, that make up a relatively small percentage of the company's overall revenue today, but it's growing rapidly and, and likely worth a, a real big chunk of the company's total EB or enterprise value. And there's third-party estimates of Clover's value today that are in the, the 30 to $40 billion range, which even at the low end would account for more than a third of, of Pfizer's enterprise value. And it's only 10% or so of the company's $15 billion of revenue. So, you know, if these estimates of third-party estimates of Clover's value are, are remotely accurate, the implication is we're paying a very, very low multiple, you know, for the earnings of the remaining 90% of Pfizer's business, which we still expect to be growing um, in the low to mid-single digit range. So we like the fact that there's some kind of newer age, quickly growing assets buried within their portfolio that, you know, we don't believe, at least today, that are receiving the same type of credit as some of these standalone peers. One last thing, we expect much of the company's free cash flow to be, to be returned to us you know, via share repurchase over time. And the company has kind of reiterated its intention to return $30 billion to shareholders over a five-year period. That's 40% of the company's market value. So we're going to get a healthy portion of our, our investment back in the form of a greater ownership stake just by waiting patiently here. When I look up Pfizer's PE ratio on the stock screener, I see 55. And you mentioned that the forward PE is 14 and that they're currently trading below that of the market. 
Are you calculating those adjusted earnings yourself, or is that an earnings amount that is provided in their financial statements? It's something we're calculating ourselves. It's something that, that Wall Street calculates itself as well. But it gets back to what Bill explained earlier about some of the amortization that gets born through a transaction like they did with First Data that is non-cash and something that we believe is, is not a true charge or tax against the company moving forward. So we typically, we don't ignore amortization, but in this specific instance, we don't believe it'll be a true operating expense for the business. And that's one of the exciting things. We think we know one of the big reasons why this is underpriced in the market. A typical value investor who's doing a screen like you're doing sees it at 55 times earnings, like nothing to see here, move on. And when you dig a little bit deeper and you see how much cash the business is generating, you see that it's a remarkably different multiple on cash flow generation than it is on PE. Now, why do you believe that there's such a large disconnect in the valuation between Pfizer and maybe some other competitors like Square and PayPal? I think that's something we find in a lot of businesses today where you have a potential disruptor that the market is valuing extremely high level, lots of optimism about what the disruptor's future might look like. And then inside of the traditional business, you've got very heavy R&D spending in a lot of cases, advantaged relative to a newcomer in the business. And yet the market just doesn't seem to pay much for it. You know, we see that with GM and their investments in autonomous driving and Lyft, electronic vehicles. You see it in a company like Ally Financial that we own, where people think of them as kind of a legacy auto lender, but they're actually the largest internet bank today. So it's not too surprising to us that the pure plays like Square or PayPal sell at much higher multiples than what's implied for Square inside of Pfizer. Yeah, as our chairman likes to say, in this market, you're either a, a unicorn or a dinosaur. And I think Pfizer has, you know, the largest and one of the oldest payments company in the world is, is perceived to be a, the dinosaur. And despite being a so-called legacy fintech company, Pfizer is still a good company. As you mentioned, it's, it's grown adjusted earnings at a double-digit rate for many decades. It's expected to grow high single digits going forward, EPS at 15 plus percent. It generates high returns on invested capital. It's levered to good end markets like payments and, and bank IT spend. And you know, even average performers in the payment sector tend to be well above average companies in general. So you know, it is surprising to us that a business that grows faster and higher returns in the index and whose business is pretty resilient over time is trading at, at such a big discount, but there are fears that the company will be a share donor over time. But even if they did undergrow the market by a few percentage points, and we believe they've been holding share, but that wouldn't make it necessarily uninvestable to us. You know, price needs to come into the picture here as well. And we start to consider that Pfizer trades at 14 times next year's after-tax earnings, while some of the newer companies trade for you know, a comparable multiple of revenue. We just believe there's so much more that has to go right for the other group to justify their valuation. We don't believe that's the case for Pfizer. And that's why we like the risk reward. But Pfizer is not standing still. They're spending a lot to continue to innovate. And you know, as the incumbent, there are some disadvantages, but there are some advantages too. They have the resources and the R&D budget and the existing customers and, and a really talented uh, employee base to continue to you know, develop and innovate and remain a leader in the space. It's funny how the term legacy has taken on such a negative connotation. A business that's a leader today, kind of by definition, is the legacy in, in that industry. And 
lots of times that's a really good thing, not a bad thing. Makes a lot of sense to me. Now, your team sees a ton of potential in the value of Clover going forward as it's growing its GPV at a very fast pace. And Clover is a competitor to Square, a direct competitor. What are the big differentiators between Square and Clover? Are they really similar or does Square have better technology that the market likes a lot more? What's going on between those two? Yeah, good question. Maybe just stepping back over the past decade or so, smaller merchants have been kind of shifting away from you know standalone payment processing and toward integrated software offerings that provide you know both payment processing capabilities as well as you know various other business management applications. And Clover um, and Square are leading players in this space. You can think of really both companies as somewhat of a of a business operating system for small merchants. Of course, its its primary purpose is to accept and process these payments. But in addition to doing that, they you know Clover's app software applications will allow a merchant to to track inventory, to manage payroll and scheduling, store company files, create loyalty programs, you know, all from from one unified platform. And you know, integrating this payment processing capabilities into that software really dramatically reduces merchant churn, provides more utility to the merchant, and it makes it more disruptive to switch providers. You know, and for these reasons, you tend to see that the economics for a Clover or a Square you know, tend to be much better than pure payment processors or enterprise merchant acquiring at the large merchant level. They really own the customer relationship. So I guess getting back to your more specific question, Clover is a, is a horizontal platform serving the, the retail and the restaurant, the services at markets. And there are competitors out there like Toast that focus specifically on one vertical like restaurants. And you know, you also have Square, which tends to be a bit more horizontal, but focused a bit more on the, with really a stronghold on the micro merchant, whereas Clover tends to focus on larger SMBs. They both have really well-developed app marketplaces on their platform. I'd say one big difference is that Clover uses third-party distributors, like I explained before, to sell its product, whereas almost all of Square's business is direct. And you know, I'd say they're both considered to be great products by merchants, but the market treats them a bit differently. You know, Clover is bigger than Square today in payment volume with roughly 200 billion or so annualized, and it's growing faster. The total addressable market is, is measured in trillions of dollars. And, you know, our view is that both these companies can have a lot of success in Clover for quite some time at high rates. And you're looking at Clover, it's, it's grown at about high 30s or so compounded over the last several years. And it's really expected to sustain that 25 to 30% growth over time. So Square's seller business is being valued at above 50 billion by many sell side analysts. Most people think Clover might be worth 30 to 40. Pfizer's total enterprise value is 85 billion today. So it's a really interesting asset. You know, we think if those estimates are, are remotely accurate, you know, the value of the business is quite compelling, but we consider them to be two of the three or four leading products in that space today. This reminds me of PayPal's payment platform, Venmo, competing with Square's Cash App, where it seems that it's not you know, a clear winner-take-all market. There's multiple players that are operating that have very similar products or might just be serving a slightly different customer base. Are you familiar with what the take rate is on transactions for both Clover and Square? Yeah, that's an interesting analogy that you brought up. But yes, the, the take rate for Clover is you know, about 85 to 90 basis points, which compares to Square's estimated take rate at about 1% to 1.1%. And like I mentioned before, Square is really a 100% direct model almost, whereas Clover 
uses others like banks and independent sales organizations and software vendors in addition to a direct offering. But direct distribution is the most profitable up to a merchant, and you don't have to pay sales commission. So I think Fiserv has clearly used its expansive channel partnerships to its advantage to accelerate growth, you know, both in the US and increasingly the rest of the world. But their economics are a bit inferior to square seller business. The flip side is I think we can attribute a good portion of Clover's ability to, to eclipse square in transaction volume to these distribution relationships that they have. It seems like it's impossible to talk about the payment space without bringing up cryptocurrencies. Do you foresee any disruptions in the payment space with the rise of things like Lightning Network on Bitcoin or stablecoins or maybe something that could take away the take rate that many of these businesses are getting? I would say you can put us down as crypto skeptics. We don't want to invest in something unless we think we've got a pretty good idea of the estimated value of it and what kind of range there could be around that. And I think that's very difficult to get to with something as new as crypto. We also tend to think that new innovations, the champions of those innovations always anticipate a much faster adoption rate than ends up being realistic. So I don't think it's a big risk for Fiserv, but let's say we're wrong. I mean, Fiserv has figured out how to become the market leader doing transactions in something like 100 different currencies. If one of the cryptocurrencies takes over and becomes a primary mean of exchange, pretty confident that Fiserv is going to find a way that you can transact over their network in crypto the same way you could in euros or yen or dollars or any other currency. Now, cryptocurrencies obviously aren't a big risk for you guys. Are there any other risks that you see with Fiserv outside of potentially the competitive landscape? Let me start with two that we would always think of as a risk for any company that we invest in. One is, do they have the management in place to achieve their operating plan? And as Mike has mentioned, we've got tremendous confidence in the CEO at Fiserv. So we don't think that's an unusual risk. And then with any company that's generating as much cash as Fiserv is, your big risk is that they don't invest that cash well, that they aren't looking for the value maximizing opportunities. And with Fiserv committed to give that capital back to the owners of the business, largely through repurchases, we're pretty comfortable that we don't have a lot of risk of them doing acquisitions that are value destructive or starting in on new unrelated businesses that they aren't competitively advantaged in and end up investing for a lower rate of return. So on those two big picture items, I would say we're more comfortable than average that the risk level here is low. And I'll let Mike address the company-specific risks. Yeah, Clay, I mean, I would say heightened competitive intensity is clearly the biggest risk in our view. And it can manifest itself in various ways. But beyond competition to your question, like many companies, cyclical companies, payment volumes you know, are sensitive to the state of the economy. So if we entered a recession, things like spike in unemployment or slower wage growth could have an impact on consumption, of course. We're focusing a lot on 40% of the business that's payments. But away from that, to the extent that we witness big reduction in bank IT spend, a massive consolidation of smaller and medium-sized banks as they try to compete against the larger banks that could put pressure on Pfizer's bank software division over time. But competition is the market's biggest concern, and certainly ours. But Pfizer is a heavily diversified business, and it's unlikely that one single business line can take down the company. And I think that's a dynamic that we believe 
is not you know, well appreciated or maybe fairly reflected in today's values, a better way of putting it. But those, those would be some of the bigger ones that we think of outside of competition. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Now that we've talked a lot about Pfizer, I'm curious, how did Pfizer even come up on your radar? There are thousands of stocks in the market, so you have to come up with some way to narrow down your investable stocks to invest in. What is it that you look for in new companies to invest in that lead you to researching a business further? Yeah. I mean, in this specific instance, it was a company that I have been looking at for quite some time and maybe even stepping back further. All of us here at Harris Associates and Oakmark, we're constantly reading and researching and doing work on companies every day. And the vast majority of the time, we're doing a lot of work, but maybe one of those three criteria that Bill mentioned at the top of the show, we just couldn't get confident enough in. Maybe we, we weren't quite confident in management yet, or that it wasn't trading at a cheap enough discount to intrinsic value, or we were having a hard time trying to project out what we thought uh, a reasonable growth rate would be for call it the next you know, five plus years or so. But we still follow those names. We're constantly 
going to conferences, jumping on their earnings calls, speaking with other CEOs and CFOs to try to get you know, as smart as we can about these companies, especially the pieces of the puzzle we weren't able to put together perfectly at the start. Now, with Pfizer specifically, I think that kind of how this one came about, it was a name that you know, was always intrigued by, felt they had a really good competitive position. You, know, you had mentioned before they had grown like clockwork and really delivered through up markets and down markets, but it was really never just selling at a cheap enough price. And three events really took place at once. You had the transaction with First Data, which created a little bit of confusion in the market and the opportunity for us to revisit the name. You had a sell-off in the stock and you had a new manager come in and take over the company. And I think those three factors really moved it back up to near the top of our radar screen and made it a good opportunity to revisit it. And our conclusion was that you know, we were able to get more comfortable with, with those factors and, uh, and thought it was cheaper, but, but expected to grow quicker. And that's really what brought it back to our radar screen. Speaking more generally of like where we find ideas at Oakmark, 30 years ago when we started Oakmark, you could pretty much just do a screen on PEs, look for the low PE companies, buy the cheap stocks, wait for reversion to the mean, and that was a pretty effective strategy. One of the reasons it worked is because we didn't all have tremendous computing power on our phones or on our laptops. And it was a hassle to get a screen together, clean up the data, and really find the stocks that were selling at low PE ratios. Now that anybody can do that really easily, the value of that has fallen dramatically. And now we have to look more for a company like this, where the stated numbers don't really reflect what's going on inside the business. We find that in a lot of companies that gap accounting that was really designed for a bricks and mortar world where investments were made in fixed investments. You put them on the balance sheet, you depreciate them. Today, most investment is made through the income statement. It's not in assets that you can touch and feel. It's R&D spending, it's building a global network, it's intellectual property, it's advertising, customer acquisition. All those things go straight through the income statement. So we spend a lot of time looking at companies that don't look cheap on the surface, that when you dig into them, you find that accounting is doing them an injustice. We look for these transformational events where the future might be a lot different than the past. We look for managerial changes where maybe a new management team is coming in that can earn a very different return on sales than the old management team could. So our approach to finding new ideas has become much more eclectic than it used to be. And I think you know, that's just kind of the history of, of investing. You do something for long enough that works. Other people copy it and it stops working. So you kind of have to stay, stay ahead of what other people can do easily on their computer. And I think at Oakmark, we've done a better than average job of that. Your Oakmark funds are typically more value funds with companies like those in the financial and energy sectors, and they tend to have lower PE ratios. You know, it's something like Pfizer where you're adjusting the PE and saying it's lower than the market multiple. However, Alphabet and Facebook are both holdings of yours in your large cap fund. Could you talk about what led you to own these higher growth and very large companies in your fund that's more value focused? Yeah, it's funny. I think a lot of times 
people get the idea that value investors are stuck investing in below average businesses, what Warren Buffett or Benjamin Graham called the cigar butt companies. But to us, value just means that you're getting a lot more than you're paying for. And through some of these accounting issues where a company is making a lot of investments for the future that aren't creating current earnings, it's creating the misperception that the company's expensive. Uh, you look at a company like Alphabet, and they're investing a tremendous amount in autonomous vehicles, in healthcare, in Google Cloud, none of which really is earning any money today. In fact, it's losing significant money. We think about it like if they made those investments with a venture capital firm instead, the accounting would be very different. It would be a big asset that goes on their balance sheet. And the losses that are going through those venture companies don't go through the income statement. So we add them back. We look at something like cash. Both Facebook and Alphabet have a ton of cash. You're lucky if you can earn 1% on cash today that you know, maybe is two-thirds of 1% after you pay income taxes on it. So if you had a dollar that was invested in a treasury bill earning 1%, two-thirds of 1% after tax, that dollar is selling at 150 times earnings. So any company that's got a lot of excess cash today has almost a hidden asset there. So when we look piece by piece at the values, we separate out the cash, we look at the venture cap investments that aren't earning money, we look at the under-monetized investments like YouTube at Alphabet that still, through either subscriptions or advertising, is monetizing at a fraction of what other streaming services are. And we do a piece-by-piece -piece valuation. And when we sum up the parts, we uh, subtract that from the stock price and say, we're really getting the search business at less than a market multiple. Or in the case of Facebook, if you look at WhatsApp, the investments in artificial intelligence and Oculus. Look, you try and break it down to get down to what are you really paying for Instagram and blue Facebook? And again, we think we're able to purchase those at substantially less than a market multiple because the market just isn't paying much for cash and those venture cap-like investments. And as we move to more and more of a business world that's based on intangible assets, intellectual property, venture capital-like investing, R&D, we think there are more and more of these opportunities where really good businesses look like they're selling at an expensive PE ratio. But by the time you do the work and dig into it, there's a core piece of the business that everybody agrees is a great business. And we think we're buying them at less than a market multiple. So to us, this is still just as much value investing as buying GM at six times earnings was. It's just a little more complicated to get there. Now, your primary large cap fund holds about 50 companies, which seems fairly diversified for how thoroughly you guys are doing your research on these. When you look at your investments in companies like Google and Facebook, do you ever think about increasing your concentration in these businesses due to the just massive moat and competitive advantages and growth rates that these companies have? Well, just for a frame of reference, our typical competition in the mutual fund business owns about 150 names. And most mutual funds have a goal of being so diversified that they can't underperform the market by very much. So it's kind of a 
don't lose by enough to lose the client mentality. We go the opposite direction and say the skill we bring to the table is stock selection. And from what Mike has talked about on Fiserv, you can tell we know our companies in depth. We don't just take flyers because we think it's a cute ticker symbol or, or we heard somebody say something positive about the name. Because we know so much about the businesses, we want to own a lot fewer names in our portfolio than our competition does. So getting it down to 50 names already gives us a much more concentrated product than most of what else is available in the marketplace. But because we know a lot of people who use our funds build their own portfolios of mutual funds, we also have a more concentrated product, the Oakmark Select Fund, that only owns 20 names. And whereas Alphabet makes up about 4% of Oakmark Fund, it makes up about 10% of the Oakmark Select Fund. Now, somebody who's going through a life-changing event, you know, they sell a business, they get an inheritance, maybe they get a divorce settlement, they get a big raise they weren't expecting. They come to us and say, what do you do that we can invest this in and not have to think about it for the next decade? We're going to say the Oakmark Fund. But if somebody says, I own a growth fund, I own a couple good international funds, I've got a lot of other investments outside the stock market, where can I invest where your favorite ideas really dominate your portfolio? We'd tell them the Oakmark Select Fund is a great spot for that capital. Now, it's going to be more volatile than the Oakmark Fund is. When we're wrong, it's going to perform worse than Oakmark does. But over a long period of time, the Oakmark Fund has done very well and the Oakmark Select Fund has done better. It's a bumpier ride and people have to know that before they get in. Uh, but that's what happens when you concentrate your holdings. Each name matters more to the overall results and it creates a more volatile fund. But if you're right more than you're wrong, the benefits of concentration are indeed positive. Your Oakmark Fund has 34% of its assets in the financial sector. What is it exactly about the financial sector that you guys like? Is it just a you know, very attractively priced sector at the time? Or what do you guys see in there? What I would say is we look at that sector as being the most underpriced sector in the market today. We think a lot of investors after the great financial crisis in 08 kind of gave up on banks and some other financials because they thought it was too hard to understand what the companies were actually doing. I mean, we look at it and say, if you'd told us back in 2007 that real estate prices were going to fall by 30%, you know, do you want to own companies whose assets are almost all tied to real estate that are levered 15 to 1? We would have said, that's, you know, we want to stay as far away from that industry as you could get. But we weren't that prescient. We lost a lot of money on financials in the great financial crisis. But we think the businesses are very different today. They've got a lot more equity typically 10 to 15% in equity instead of 5 to 10. Most loans today are done on what I would call kind of good old-fashioned banking standards. Before 08, banks got the idea that you didn't really need to worry about the person you were giving the loan to. You could just base your loan on the property because worst case, you'd just repossess it. And I think they learned a valuable lesson. And today, you have to put more down to get a mortgage. You have to be a more responsible credit to get a mortgage. And yet, despite these improvements, banks that used to sell at about three quarters of the market multiple, so S&P at about 20 times earnings today, that'd be 15 times earnings. You can buy the best banks in the United States for seven to 10 times earnings. 
Mike could spend another hour talking about Ally Financial. It's our largest holding today in the Oakmark Fund, an auto loan retailer with an internet bank to gather deposits. It's selling at about seven times estimates of this year's current earnings. And by the end of this year, tangible book value should have grown to almost the share price or maybe the end of next year. The point is, you don't have to believe these are the best businesses in the world to want to own them. But if they got back to selling at three quarters of the market multiple, even though we would argue they're better businesses today than they were during the time period they averaged that discount, this company like Ally Financial, their PE would double. They're buying back about 10% of their stock a year. They're paying a 3% dividend and selling at seven, eight times earnings. The market today is just very bimodal. You've got these high growth businesses that are selling at 100 times earnings if they earn anything at all. And then we have legacy businesses that people worry are going to get disrupted. And if disruption takes 10 or 15 years before it happens, they're going to return all that capital to us. They're return their whole share price in share repurchases and dividends in less than a decade. So we think the risk is very low with financials and the potential return quite high. Yeah. And it's important to remember, Clay, that it really is an eclectic combination of various financial services companies. I mean, there are some really cheap banks that are selling around the value. As Bill mentioned, that we thought they could sell all their assets, pay back all their liabilities and give us close to our money back or the market price. But you know, there's other names in there like Get American Express or KKR or Schwab that might act a little bit different than a Wells Fargo or an ally or a Bank of America would in different environments. So we own these businesses because we think they're cheap on a bottoms up absolute basis and not because they're labeled as financials. But you know, it's really a, a pretty well diversified mix of some pretty cheap businesses in our view. It's funny that I'll hear so many people talk about how expensive the market is today. And then I'll listen to guys like yourselves that really just make so much sense and take a lot of the speculation out of investing. And I just think that's so powerful and so important for people to learn about for those who are looking for value in the market. Now, Bill and Mike, thank you so much for coming onto the show to talk about your fund and talk about Pfizer. I really enjoyed this episode and I think the audience will really enjoy it as well and find a ton of value in it. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to learn more about you guys and your fund? I think the easiest spot to go is our website, oakmark.com. You can also find us on Twitter under Oakmark. And I think a good way to learn about how we think about investing, I write a quarterly commentary piece. You can find five years of those on our website. Somebody who invests a couple hours to read five years of those quarterlies would have a very good understanding of how we think about investing and why we think the Oakmark Fund is an unusually good opportunity for people to commit long-term capital to. Awesome. I'll link all of that in the show notes. And I'll be sure to check out some of those commentaries myself as I really enjoy learning from you guys. Thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Clay, thanks so much for having us. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Clay. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. 
Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.